0: In Canada, we get universal public coverage of physician services and hospital care. But when it comes to prescription drugs used outside of hospitals, a large proportion of Canadians pay for these drugs either partly or entirely out of pocket. Canada is an outlier as the only advanced economy with a universal healthcare system that excludes coverage of prescription drugs. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Steve Morgan, Professor of Health Policy at the University of British Columbia School of Population and Public Health, and Dr. Nav Prasad Physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and Assistant Professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Morgan and Dr. Passard published a research article in CMAJ which they estimated the effects of adding public coverage of essential medicines to existing public drug plans in Canada they argue that adding essential medicines to public drug plans is a pragmatic step toward universal pharmacare. I reached Dr. Prasad in Toronto and Dr. Morgan in Vancouver. Hello to both of you. Hello. 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 Steve, this is a follow-up paper to another research article you published in 2015. Remind us what you found in that article.
1: Yeah, in the 2015 article, we did an estimation of what would be the impact on uh, private and public spending on medicines in Canada of having a universal and comprehensive system of public drug coverage in Canada. Uh, We used quite detailed information about drug utilization and costs in uh, each province and found, based on 2012-13 fiscal year information, that a system of universal public coverage for Canada would reduce total spending on prescription drugs by about $7.3 billion. In the worst case scenario that we did in that analysis, the savings would be approximately 4.2 billion. And in the best case scenario, the savings for Canada would have been about 9.4 billion. Uh, all of those estimates were for a system of coverage that was uh, universal and truly comprehensive in the sense that we basically looked at uh, the government moving to being single payer for more or less all pharmaceuticals in Canada.
0: Give us an overview of what you looked at in this new article and why you felt this was an appropriate next step for a study.
1: Yeah, so by way of background, I think in the last few years, a growing number of voices, including health professionals, business leaders and public interest groups, have called on governments to act on recommendations for a system of universal public coverage in Canada. But despite the calls for reform, there's been relatively little action. Now, there are some uh, political and institutional barriers to reform uh, for a pharmacare system in Canada, but those are not insurmountable in the sense that we know that government uh, could uh, act if if they had the will. But there may actually be some logistical, uh, practical considerations that are impeding a development of a pharmacare program in Canada. Uh, for example, a universal comprehensive pharmacare program would involve a number of challenges such as the delineation of a truly national and evidence-based formulary that could include potentially thousands of products on it. Uh, For every one of those products, you would need a pricing and supply contract to be ironed out with the manufacturers. And if you move towards a comprehensive pharmacare program uh, quickly, uh, it is a significant uh, change in the financing of medicines insofar as A much greater share of what we currently spend on medicines will need to flow through the public system as opposed to the private system today. So what we sought to do with this new study is to explore a means of of overcoming some of those logistical barriers by In effect, starting small. Uh, We explore the impacts of adding universal coverage um, of an essential medicines list to the existing complement of public and private plans in Canada. Uh, And to be clear, we don't propose that this would be the end goal of a public pharmacare program in Canada, but rather we wanted to determine whether it was a viable step in the right direction.
0: Nav, can you give us a summary of what essential medicine lists are and how you came to develop this model list for Canada?
2: Essential medicines are those that are needed. We started with the World Health Organization's model list of essential medicines that's now in its 19th edition after being started in the 1970s, and we adapted that list to Canada based on disease prevalence here, uh, based on prescribing patterns in Canada, and based on feedback from clinicians. As we describe in our CMAJ open paper, we started with the World Health Organization's Model List of Essential Medicines, that's in its 19th edition, uh, and we adapted the list based on disease prevalence in Canada, prescribing patterns in Canada, and based on feedback from clinicians in Canada.
0: Canada has a patchwork of private and public financing of medication. Can you give us a sense of who is paying and how many Canadians are paying out of pocket for their medicines?
2: We know that 23% of people report that either they or a member of their household haven't taken a medication as instructed because of the cost. And these include people who have some form of insurance, either through their employer or through a public plan, and the approximately 15 or 20% of Canadians who have no form of insurance at all. For those who are insured, there are some people who are underinsured. They cannot afford to pay the fraction of the medication costs that are not insured, Uh, And obviously, for people um, who have no form of insurance, uh, these might include taxi drivers or food service workers who, because of their income, uh, can't afford medications after paying the rent uh, or paying for food.
0: In this new study, you first came up with an estimate of the 2015 cost and volume of essential medicines in Canada. What did you find about those costs?
2: Um, First, we looked at how well the list could serve. Canadians based on current prescribing patterns and we found that even just looking at the prescribing of these 117 medications uh, that they would cover 44% of prescriptions written in Canada. Uh, And if we consider equivalence within a class, the number rises to 77%. Uh, We've gone through the list in detail looking at equivalence and we think that estimate is actually quite conservative and it may even be a larger fraction of medications currently prescribed that could be covered by an essential medicines list like this one.
0: So potentially more than 44% of uh, prescriptions.
2: Potentially more than 77%, correct.
0: Okay. You also compared pricing with other countries and that's really interesting. Give us the highlights of your findings there.
1: Yeah, so this is Steve here, and let me just explain a little bit of what we were able to do. Uh, one of the advantages of essential medicines list is that it's a relatively small list of drugs. And so as a consequence, we were actually able to, uh, as a team, uh, go about looking up the price of these medicines in other health systems that we might compare Canada to. So for generic medicines... We compared prices in Canada with prices found in three nation-level drug coverage systems. We looked at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, which runs a national tendering system for the supply of medicines for U.S. veterans. We also looked at the universal public drug coverage systems in Sweden and in New Zealand. Uh, Both countries published the the, the prices of generic medicines purchased under their systems, and both of them are systems that Canada's might resemble if we were to move forward with the truly nationwide system of coverage. What we found on generic prices was that the average prices of the generic versions of essential medicines on the list were 47% lower in the United States, 60% lower in Sweden, and 84% lower in New Zealand. And although those prices may sound extremely low, in many cases, the drugs sold in these other markets were made by the same manufacturers that also sell the products in Canada. Furthermore, recent evidence has emerged to indicate that generic manufacturers in Canada are actually giving retailers, that is retail pharmacies, significant off-invoice rebates that would bring their net price prices closer to those that we see in these other markets. So there's evidence to suggest that prices as low as the ones we have found abroad could in fact be possible in Canada. Finally, we also looked at some brand name prices and this is very difficult to do in the modern pharmaceutical marketplace because um, typically today pharmaceuticals that are uh, are protected by patent are priced a little bit like you price a new car. There's the sticker price, which everyone can see, but then there's the negotiated net of rebate price that uh, is the final price paid by insurers around the world. In the Canadian context, the rebates are in fact negotiated and and paid uh, by manufacturers to our public drug plans, which no doubt lowers the prices of public uh, drug plans or the prices that public drug plans pay. But a major problem with our patchwork system of private and public coverage in Canada is that the private insurers, and notably the uninsured in Canada, are ineffective at securing such rebates. So we were able to ballpark the likely savings on brand name drugs by uh, seeking some information about the net of rebate prices for drugs at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. The methods were a bit complicated, but designed to make sure that we kept the actual prices of particular products confidential and just were able to obtain a ballpark estimate of how much lower could brand name prices be if the negotiations were to take place with with a national purchasing body like the the VA health benefit in the United States. We found that the prices that they were paying in the US were 43 percent lower than list prices in Canada. And it's notable, again, to, to, to suggest that um, when we've talked to policymakers about the findings from this study, uh, some of the Canadian policymakers in the provinces and territories have said, you know, that 43% off of a brand name product, depending on the product, uh, might actually be a reasonable estimate of what uh, a bulk payer could get. So, again, there's evidence to suggest that we found very significant uh, reductions in possible prices, but those uh, reductions appear uh, on face value to be feasible.
0: Well, that's an incredible piece of work in itself. Finally, you estimated the cost of adding universal public drug coverage of essential medicines to public drug plans in Canada. What did you find then?
1: So similar to our 2015 study of the comprehensive uh, drug plan for Canada, this was one where we built an economic model of the impact of covering the essential medicines uh, for all Canadians. We used a range of assumptions about the changes in generic and brand name prices on the formulary, as well as assumptions about the changes in demand for medicines stemming from covering uh, this basket of medicines on top of the existing system of coverage that would still be offered to Canadians that qualify for public insurance in Canada. Uh, surprisingly, perhaps for many of the listeners, would be the fact that we found that uh, simply adding universal public coverage of the essential medicines list to the existing complement of private and public plans in this country would actually save patients and private drug plan sponsors $4.3 billion a year. And the incremental cost to government of doing that would only be approximately $1.3 billion a year. So in net, this is a, a major opportunity to expand coverage and actually generate billions of dollars in savings.
0: So whenever an editor hears the words, we built a model, we always wonder about the assumptions that were made regarding the inputs into that model. Could these assumptions that you made turn out to be way off base?
1: Uh, With any economic model, you have to recognize that there is a range of possibilities in the future. Um, We actually used what we think are quite conservative estimates uh, based on available scientific research studies that have looked at uh, consumer responses to different levels of coverage for the drugs that they might need. We used uh, available evidence from international experiences with different pricing models and coverage systems. And so we know we've got a range of parameters and actually a fairly wide range of outcomes but the, um, the net effect of, of this notion of essentially bulk purchasing essential medicines from Canada is something that, uh, whether it's in our hospitals or say through our, uh, the Canadian blood services or even through how we acquire vaccines and other public health supplies, uh, we have models in Canada that demonstrate that indeed you can actually generate considerable savings while ensuring access to certain components of health system, the health system simply by having uh, nationalized institutional systems to, to um, make that possible. One of the things that's also worth noting in this piece, uh, we were conservative in the sense that um, following from our previous study and hearing some of the, the concerns that were expressed by various stakeholders in the sector, we specifically looked at different ways that you might adjust for exchange rates in our in this model. So we, we test the sensitivity of these results to different methods of of converting Canadian dollars to, to foreign currencies. We also did not include the indirect savings to government from the reduced cost of private drug coverage for public sector employees, which is actually a very considerable savings to the public sector, but maybe that would be reinvested in uh, better health insurance for other uh, necessary services for public sector employees. We did another number of other things that we didn't include as well. We did not reduce uh, uh, the dispensing fees to pharmacies that might stem from patients shopping around for a low-cost dispensary. Uh, We also didn't... uh, uh, include the downstream impact on the health system of increased adherence to essential therapies, which evidence suggests will no doubt improve the health of Canadians and therefore take some of the strain off the rest of the healthcare system.
0: Well, all in all, it seems that you paid attention to the robustness of your model and by including a range of assumptions and doing some sensitivity analysis. So in your opinion, what do you think needs to happen next to make universal coverage of prescription drugs a reality in Canada?
2: It's Nav here. I think federal, provincial and territorial governments should pay attention not just to research findings like these ones, but also to the views of Canadians on this issue. Um, A citizens reference panel on pharmacare recently met in Ottawa And they recommended that the government act quickly to publicly fund uh, a minimal list of essential medicines for all Canadians. That's not a unique view. Uh, A 2015 survey found that 88% um, of Canadians agree that um, regardless of income, all Canadians should have access to necessary prescription medicines. And the same number, 88%, um, felt it was not right that Canadians have to struggle to pay for medications that they need. Publicly funding essential medicines would provide all Canadians with the medications they need.
0: With all this evidence mounting, how close do you think we actually are to seeing pharmacare become a reality in Canada? Is it going to be part of the next budget cycle?
1: Catherine Booth, who's a political scientist at McMaster University and I, wrote a paper last fall about some of the political and institutional barriers to moving forward on this file. And um Right now, if you look at the sort of constellation of provincial premiers in this country and our prime minister, uh, this is the first time in any moment in the history of Canada's healthcare system where you have had a liberal federal government in either liberal or progressive governments in seven of the 10 Canadian provinces, and perhaps most importantly, you have liberal governments in Ontario and Quebec, and you have an NDP government in Alberta. over the course of our lifetimes, that will never happen again. <laughs> so in some sense, the window of political opportunity is open. Um, the question is political timing. Uh, Trudeau's government have played a a fairly shrewd uh, political game in the 2015 election. They won a, an incredible mandate, um, and they did so without having pharmacare in their agenda or in their platform. And there have been signals from the Trudeau cabinet about the idea that Pharmacare is for the next mandate of the Trudeau government. It's something to be discussed in the next election campaign. So there's a bit of a challenge with respect to this issue. It's clear that it's on the radar of governments, and it's clear that the window of political opportunity in terms of federal provincial cooperation or at least similar ideation around this issue is there. Um, however, Um, If they're playing a long political game, 2019's quite a long way away and and notably uh, Ontario, Quebec and Alberta all go up for election between now and then and it's not entirely clear that the deck will be as favourably stacked uh, at that point as it is now.
0: So it would be good to take advantage of the current political climate.
1: I think that this, this idea, you know, a NAVSA work in the area of essential medicines has caught the attention of people in the provinces. Um, it's an idea that resonates with, uh, I think clinicians because they understand, you know, even for the basics, patients are often having difficulty filling prescriptions. And, um, and it's sufficiently pragmatic and it even fits possibly within the mandate letter of the current uh, federal health minister that this, this incremental step may actually be something that could be on the table. Would it be as comprehensive of, of a list as the clean meds list is? Perhaps not. Maybe they'll start with, rather than 140 uh, medicines, maybe they'll start with 100. Um, but there is a, there's a window of opportunity to say if you can't do it all now, um, if you're waiting till after the next election campaign to do a more comprehensive reform, maybe in this window, you know, one of these more pragmatic steps is feasible.
0: It's great talking to you today.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Steve Morgan, Professor of Health Policy at the University of British Columbia School of Population and Public Health, and Dr. Nav Pasar, Physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and Assistant Professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. To read the research article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've been listening to our CMAJ podcasts, please leave us a rating on iTunes or give us your feedback on SoundCloud or any of our social media channels.